Father, as we come now to read and expound and learn from Your Word, holy men of old wrote as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit, help us to read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest, and all for Jesus' sake. Amen. Please be seated. Well, let me uh, thank you for your um, kind invitation to come uh, to Oahu once again. This is my second visit, and uh, my wife is sitting third, fourth row from the back, and uh, she's a backseat kind of girl. <laughs> and uh, I too have two dogs whom I love uh, dearly. I, I did not call them John MacArthur. And and R.C. Sproul, uh, but I did call one of them Luther, um, and I would have called the other one Calvin, except that she's a girl, so she became Gracie. Uh, well, we've been looking together at uh, Colossians 3, 1 through 17 this weekend, and I understand that some of you, of course, weren't able to be there. Um, but this morning, I want to finish off, uh, and it's a, it's a standalone text. You don't have to have known uh, what's gone before in order to understand verses 15, 16, and 17, which will be my text this morning. But let me uh, set some kind of context uh, by reading from the first verse. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its Creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved compassionate hearts, 
kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Now, what we have seen in our studies together in this extraordinary um, set of verses, Colossians 3, 1 to 17, provides a template for the shape and contours of godliness, of spiritual maturity. And the apostle is giving you a set of keys, one of which, and the principal one, is that you need to know who you are. You need to know your identity. Our society is all about identity. People are uncertain as to who they are. They're uncertain about their gender. They're uncertain about a number of things because they've lost contact with their Judeo-Christian roots and heritage. And Paul is saying one of the most significant things in order for you to grow and become spiritually mature, mature is to understand who you are. You're not who you once were. You have died, he says, to your old self. You are a man, a woman in Christ. Your old Adamic self to whom you were enslaved is gone. If you are a Christian, that old Adamic self is gone, and you are a man in Christ. You are a woman in Christ. You are raised with Him. You died with Him, and you were raised with Him, and you sit in heavenly places in Him. We've also seen that the rhythm of sanctification involves a negative and a positive, a putting off and a putting on, a putting to death and a bringing to life. There are remaining sins that beset us, and Paul lists ten of them, and they need to be destroyed, they need to be killed. 
And this may take an entire lifetime in order to achieve, but that's our calling, to put off these sins and to put on Christ-like graces and Christ-like behavior. And now he comes in verse 15 to say, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. What does he mean by the peace of Christ? And he possibly means two distinct but related ideas. First of all, the peace of the gospel, because unless the peace of the gospel reigns in your heart, you will never grow. You must understand the shape of the gospel. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Naked, look to thee for dress. Foul I to the fountain, fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. To remind ourselves every, every day, every morning when we get up, that we are saved not by works, not by human effort, not by anything that we've done in the past or anything that we will do in the future, but we are saved by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone. That's a powerful motivator when you remember the gospel, that God has done it all for you, that He's brought you out of darkness and into light, that He's, he's destroyed the old Adamic self, and you are now a new self, verse 10. You've put on the new self. the peace of the gospel. But he probably also means the peace of what I want to call Romans 8.28. And we know that all things work together for good to those that love God, to those who are the called according to His purpose. That's one of those verses that brings peace. Outside of Romans 8.28, there is noise, there is disturbance, there is fear, there is alarm. But inside Romans 8.28, that all things work together for good because God orders them for good, that God's sovereign, controlling providence is in charge of every event in the universe and He's in charge of your life, and He's in charge of my life. And when I fall into a period of trial and difficulty, and though I may not understand the reason for it, I, I can rest in peace and assurance that I may not understand, but it's not important that I understand. What's important is that He understands and that I trust Him. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. We're not meant to live our lives in fear. You ever done that search in a concordance? Well, 
I'm that age where I use concordances, but you use search engines. But have you ever done that search engine for the number of times God says, be not afraid? It's quite staggering how many times God says in Scripture, be not afraid. Do you remember COVID season? It was kind of crazy. We did things that we never thought we would do and probably would never do again. But it brought out good in people and it brought out the worst in people. And in some people it brought out a sense of fear. And Christians shouldn't be governed by fear. Be anxious for nothing. But in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God and the peace of God. There it is. The peace of God that passes all understanding will guard, will garrison, protect your hearts. My dear friend, if you're a believer this morning, you're in His hands. You're kept in His hands, and He will never let you go. He has a plan for you. He has a purpose for you, and it unfolds daily. And He will protect you. That doesn't mean to say that we don't make wise choices as human beings. We're not robots. We're not automatons. But to this you were called. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called. You were called to a life of peace. We call ourselves Christians. That's not what uh, New Testament believers called themselves. There's uh, not an instance in Paul's letters where he refers to somebody as a Christian. He's more likely to call you a called one, that you're someone who has received a call, an effectual call the sovereign hand and voice of Almighty God reached down and whispered your name. And you responded by the power of the Holy Spirit and believed. And you're called to what? You're called to a life of peace peace with God, peace in justification, peace in providence, when peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot you have taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul.
you will remember who wrote that hymn, Horatio, Horatio Spafford from Chicago. He had sent his wife and three daughters on a ship, the SS Ville de Havre, across the Atlantic Ocean, and the ship went down. And his wife, who was saved from the waters, made it to Ireland, and she sent a telegram with two words on it, saved alone, meaning that his three daughters were drowned in the Atlantic. And when Horatio Spafford made his way to be with his grieving wife, the captain of the ship that he was on stopped at the point where the other ship had gone down. And it is said that it was on that occasion that he wrote that hymn, when peace like a river attendeth my way. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Unbelievers should encounter something different about us, that in the midst of a storm, we are at peace. We're not flying around like a, like a garden mower that has lost contact with its owner, and it's spinning around and around and around. No, people should say there's something about that person that's uncanny. They have a peace that I know nothing about. And it's the peace of the gospel, and it's the peace of Romans 8.28. I live within the bubble of Romans 8.28 every day. And then, secondly, be thankful. Be thankful. And you'll notice he repeats it again at the end of verse 16 with thankfulness in your hearts. And you'll notice that he repeats it again at the end of verse 17, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Thankfulness. The Greek is the word Eucharist, Eucharisteo. And we use that word, Paul uses that word as a synonym for the Lord's Supper or communion. It simply means thankfulness. Now, sadly, the church, in the history of the church, the word Eucharist has been used in a, to mean something entirely different, that some, some, some hocus-pocus is taking place at the Lord's table. But it simply means thankfulness. Be thankful. And the adjective, and be thankful, only occurs here. Christians of all people should be thankful. We have received so much. 
we've received forgiveness. We've received an identity that we are in Christ. We have received a multitude of promises that having begun a good work, He will complete it unto the day of Jesus Christ. I will never leave you nor forsake you. When Christ, who is your life, shall appear, then you also will appear with Him in glory. There's a promise for which we ought to be thankful. Jesus told a parable. And He told this parable, I think, because He saw in the people that He met on a regular basis a lack of thankfulness, perhaps even among the disciples. And He told a parable about ten lepers who were healed, and only one of them returned to give thanks. It's a shocking parable. You might have expected him to say at least five of them came back. But only one returned. It's a parable. Parables are like cartoons. They blow things out of all proportion in order to make a point. It has a sting in its tail, T-A-L-E. You need to think about your English for a second. <laughs> a sting in the tail. He's telling a story, but there's a sting in it. Be thankful. Have you thanked somebody today? There are 50, 100 occasions today for which you have an opportunity, opportunity to say thank you to God, to your nearest and dearest, to your friends, even to your dogs. I'm thankful for my dogs. Be thankful. Interesting that that's one of the qualities, principal qualities of what it means to be spiritually mature. That to be spiritually immature is to be lacking in thankfulness, is to display ingratitude. We have to teach our children to be thankful. It doesn't necessarily come all by itself. And it's a mark of children, young children especially, that they're often ungrateful. We are surprised when we see a young child display untrammeled thankfulness and gratitude. It touches our hearts, little clips of young children receiving a puppy in a box, and they just start crying, and they're, they're, they can't help but say, thank you. This is what I've always wanted. But the mark of spiritual maturity is 
thankfulness. And then thirdly, let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. This is a, a word picture, that this Word has come to take up residence within us. This Word has entered the door and made its home in our hearts. And you need to hand over the key and let Him in. Let the Word of God, let the Word of Christ take up residence, to occupy your mind and your heart and your affections. It's going to come in and it's going to do a whole lot of renovation. You've probably done a renovation or two in your home, put in a new kitchen or a new bathroom. And what happens? Well, there's a lot of mess. Things have to be taken out. And new equipment has to be brought in. It's the metaphor that Paul has been talking about throughout this third chapter of Colossians, that there are things that need to be torn down, put off, and things that need to be built up and renewed. This is Paul's version of Psalm 119. Psalm 119 is a tour de force through the Hebrew alphabet from Aleph to Tau, A to Z in Hebrew. of the Word of God, of the Bible, of the Scriptures. Now, in Paul's day, there were no Bibles. There were no copies of the Old Testament uh, in people's homes, not in ordinary people's homes. Uh, you remember Philip met the Ethiopian eunuch heading back to Queen Candice of Ethiopia, she was a queen, and she could afford uh, her, her, her servant uh, to purchase in Jerusalem a scroll of the prophet Isaiah. It would have cost an arm and a leg. No, in Paul's day, folk went to synagogue. And there were scrolls, and somebody would read the scroll. They went to school in synagogues, and the scrolls, the content of those scrolls would be taught them, and they would memorize them. I think that's what Jesus um, experienced as a young boy, that He went to uh, the synagogue in uh, Nazareth, and later when He was older in Capernaum which was nearby. And I think that Jesus, as a young boy, because I hope 
that one of the reasons for forgetfulness and an inability to remember things is sin. I hope that's true. Because I want to believe that in heaven I will not forget things. You know, I'm at that age where I forget a whole lot of things, and I, I forget people that I know well. And all of a sudden, I can't remember their names. And, and the more pressure you add, the worse it gets. And you have to sort of pause and relax and take a deep breath and just don't think about that person and, and let it kind of seep back into your head again. Well, I think that Jesus had memorized the entire Old Testament as an adult. He simply, he could simply quote it from memory. Frances Ridley Havergal, she lived in the 1840s, 1850s. She she read Hebrew, Greek, and, and English, of course. And she was fond of urging and encouraging children to memorize Scripture. She, she's a hymn writer. She, she wrote some of the hymns that you sing, I'm pretty sure. Now, notice, notice what Paul says. Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. You all know what richly means. You can have a cake, it's a sponge cake, there's jam on the top of it, and that's it. Or you can have a four-tiered chocolate cake with ganache and chocolate that has been tempered, has been poured over it and all down the sides, and it's glistening. And there's cream in little blobs all the way around. That's richly. (laughs) And when you eat it, something, a dance takes place in your mouth, and you want some more. Let the Word of God dwell in you richly. Why don't you resolve today to spend more time in the Word of God? Hand over the key and let it in. And then fourthly, he goes on to say, teaching and admonishing one another. And commentators will differ, but teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, how? By singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Now, some commentators pull those two apart, and they're two different things, but but I, I think the grammar suggests that the way in which you teach and admonish in all wisdom is by singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. You know, when you sing, you're singing to God, you're giving praise to God, but you're also singing 
to one another. Singing is, um, you know, not everybody sings. I mean, there are groups of people that don't sing. I remember my, my nephew was, has not been raised in a Christian home, and uh, he came and stayed with us when he was around 16 or so, and we took him to church. It was the first time I think he'd ever been in church. And it was a large church in Jackson, Mississippi, and um, I said to him at lunch, so, so what did you think? And I was, I was taken aback. You know, this is his first time in church. The whole praying thing was odd to him. The reading of Scripture, the sermon, all that was odd to him. No, what, what stood out was that people st- stood up and sang. And he had no context in which people did that. You know, they chant in, in football, soccer matches. You know, and there's chanting, but it's rude. And, and it's foul, and what they say is, is often X-rated. But he had no context in which people... He'd, he'd been to concerts where, where he stood and listened to a band singing, but he had no context in which he was in the presence and surrounded by people who were singing. It's a Christian thing. Now, psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, I have uh, um, family members who are exclusive, unaccompanied psalm singers. And I have dear friends, close, close, close friends, who are exclusive psalm singers. I don't think that's what this is referring to. What What they say is that psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs are three different kinds of psalms. That's a stretch. In uh, the early church, they sang the Psalms. It's the Christian songbook. God has given us 150 Psalms. It is uh, strange to me that we don't sing Psalms. We try to sing two Psalms in every service. It's in the hymn book, so most people don't realize that it's a psalm, but it's actually a psalm. Right at the center of the Bible, there's a songbook, and we should be singing it. Psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. In the early church, there are, there are bits of Scripture, like Philippians 2, 5 through 11, or Colossians 1, 15 through 20, and they're, they're little nuggets about Christ, about Jesus, and who He is, and what He has done. And scholars believe that these were songs, spiritual, they were set to music, spiritual songs that they, they sang in these early house churches. It's, uh, it's something that I observe quite often when I do weddings and funerals, and a lot of people will come to a wedding or a funeral, and they're they're not churchgoers. And the singing is terrible. I say to couples, you know, they want three hymns, and I'll say, no. I said, 
why don't you just have one? Because the singing is going to be terrible. What do you do when you sing? You teach. Listen to the words. Read the words. Think about them when you're singing them. How many times have you sung a hymn up here? And at the end of the hymn, you can't remember a single word that you've said. Not a single line. So you have to be intentional. Teaching one another. Admonishing one another. to greater acts of godliness and greater acts of spiritual maturity. And then, fifthly, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. One of the principal marks of spiritual maturity is a doctrine and an understanding of vocation what this verse is talking about. Do everything. That you can't say, oh, this is a spiritual thing I'm doing, but this is, I don't know what this is, but it's not a spiritual thing. Everything that you do is a spiritual thing. Your work, your daily work, your hobby. This was one of the great contributions of Martin Luther in the Reformation, the doctrine of vocation. That it wasn't just the priests that God looked down and smiled upon, but the man who carved furniture like Jesus did with Joseph had a vocation in which he glorified God. You can't compartmentalize. This is, this is spiritual and this is secular. No, everything is spiritual. Everything that I do, I do in the name of the Lord Jesus. And if you can't do it in the name of the Lord Jesus, then don't do it. Abraham Kuyper, who was a Prime Minister in the Netherlands. He was a he was a editor of a newspaper. He was a systematic theology professor. He once said, There's not a square inch of this universe over which Jesus doesn't say mine. Mine. Everything that you do. It's his. Well, let's pray together. Do we stand for this? No? Yeah. Let's stand. I think I pray and then pronounce the benediction. Yeah. Father, we thank You. Thank You for Your Word, how practical it is, how convicting it is, how instructive it is. We want we want to be as holy as a saved sinner can be. So grant us that resolve. Help us to set our affections upon things which are above.
Forgive us for making idols every day, bowing down and worshiping them. Help us to give glory in everything to you. And whatsoever we do, in word or deed, we do it all to your praise and to your glory for Jesus' sake. Amen. Now, receive the Lord's benediction. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ until the day breaks and the shadows flee away. Amen.